Hello and welcome back to Researcher Radio, your regular academic and scientific podcast that looks and speaks to the researchers whose pieces are making waves in the scientific and academic community. So again, my name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rebecca Jones from the University of Reading. Rebecca is the author of Boundary Conditions of Workplace Coaching Outcomes. So this is completely different from what we've usually talked about here on Researcher Radio. We're looking more at uh, business rather than the life sciences. But still, let's crack in to this trending academic piece and find out a bit more about the paper and the person behind it. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, and before we learn a little bit about your paper, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career so far? And I'm sure our listeners will be extremely interested to know how you've got to this position and are studying business. Because a lot of the times with the life sciences, there's a straightforward path, if if you know what I mean. Sure. Well, I started off um, studying a psychology undergraduate degree, and I've always been really interested in understanding people and understanding how people think and the reasons why they behave in particular ways. But after my undergraduate degree, I left academia and I went into business and I worked for a number of years in recruitment as a manager until I decided that actually I wanted to come back to psychology. And I did a part-time um, master's in occupational psychology, um, which was a few years ago now. Um, and during that master's, I discovered coaching. And I also discovered that I really enjoyed doing research when I was doing my dissertation for my master's. I really loved the whole process of um, delving into a topic and becoming immersed in it. And that was when I decided that actually I'd like to do a PhD. So I studied my PhD at Aston Business School in management, and that focused on exploring the effectiveness of workplace coaching. Uh, after I finished my PhD, I got a role as a senior lecturer at the University of Worcester, and I worked there for a number of years until uh, 2017 when I joined the University of Reading, um, and I'm, I'm actually based in Henley Business School. And I'm now an associate professor in coaching and behavioral change. And I'm also the program director of EMSC in coaching and behavioral change, which is really nice because it allows me to specialize purely um, with my teaching and research, which is all focused on coaching. So um, that's something which I really enjoy doing. I'm really passionate about understanding what makes coaching effective through my research and also through my teaching. And I also have a real passion for translating research into practice. And I've got my own podcast series as well called The Coaching Academic, which is all about translating research into practice. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm definitely going to have to give that uh, a listen and obviously promote that alongside this particular episode. So obviously your paper is uh, trending throughout the research community and therefore you know, a lot of our listeners would be interested in hearing a podcast series that is very specific to this this kind of uh, topic. Okay, so... um. Yeah, let's let's talk about your your paper. Uh, what is it about? Could you give us a, a brief overview of the study that you took? Yeah, sure. So, as I mentioned, I'm really interested in this idea of dissecting um, what makes coaching work and understanding what makes coaching effective. 
And that's what we do in this paper. So we really explore different conditions that influence coaching effectiveness. So in an earlier paper I published a few years ago, which was a meta-analysis on coaching effectiveness, we identified a number of significant moderators for the impact of, of coaching outcomes. And in this paper, I wanted to return to some of those and explore them in a bit more detail and also some additional variables that we hadn't previously explored. So in this boundary conditions paper, we look at two outcomes. We look at self-reported work well-being and self-reported personal effectiveness following coaching. And we tested whether certain practice factors or um, also coachy job features had an impact on these variables. So in particular, we look at whether there was a difference between external and internal coaches. We also looked at different formats of coaching, so face-to-face coaching, telephone coaching, or blended coaching, which combines different formats, so face-to-face and telephone or face-to-face and video phone. And also we looked at whether coaching was more or less effective for coaches based on the complexity of the coaches' job role. Okay, and so I want to pick up on... um... A small point that was uh, at the very beginning of this particular paper. And for myself, I come from um, a historian's background. Uh, my, my degrees that I studied were, were history. So I'm very interested to know about the, the, the history of coaching and ask you why has coaching accelerated in the, in the last 40 years? And what is the origins of this? Well, Probably every researcher or practitioner in coaching has different uh, explanations to that question. But for me, there are, I think, three main reasons why coaching has grown so much in the last 40 years. And the first of these is probably due to the changing nature of the world that we live in. So over the last 40 years, the way in which we access information has transformed with the rise of the Internet. And this means that online learning and training is so much more accessible than it ever was previously and that means that in organizations learning and development has changed it used to be focused on transmitting information to to employees to people however now individuals can really easily access anything they want through the internet so the needs of learners have, have changed instead of actually having to just access information it's more about making sense of all the information that's out there and coaching is one of the ways that can really help us to do that. It's tailored to the individual so they can explore with their coach their own learning needs in the context of their own work environment. But also, work is more demanding than ever, and we we all know that their stress and anxiety is on the rise. And actually, coaching is another way that we can effectively learn how to manage and cope with those demands that are placed on us through work. And I'd also say that um, there have been developments in the way that we view effective leadership generally. And coaching or a coaching approach to leadership is really well aligned with the current way in which we view effective leaders. So this idea that we adopt a more collaborative approach when we're leading others, that we encourage autonomy, we encourage individuals to come up with solutions to their own problems. And this idea that we encourage personal development and fulfillment at work is all really closely aligned to the kind of whole ethos of coaching. So for me, I think it's those three reasons combined that help to explain why coaching is more and more popular and continues to be popular. 
Oh, okay, because um, with me personally, uh, when I think of coaching, I always picture this this scene from the uh, the office when there's this external coach who comes in, and then you know the the main character goes over his head. So there's this kind of clash between the internal and the the external coaching in that particular episode. So there's an acronym. ONET, which is your Occupational Information Network. And I'm just curious to understand a little bit more about it. And um, yeah, I just wanted to know if this is like the standard measure for, for job complexity in your, in your field. So I'm not aware that ONET um, database has been used previously in coaching research. However, it has been used to classify occupations in the wider work psychology literature, which is where we got the inspiration for using it in this study. I really like the ONET approach to the, the um, coding occupations because it, it's a, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's um, a database that was developed under sponsorship by the US Department of Labor and Employment. And it contains hundreds of standardized and occupation specific descriptors of almost a thousand different occupations, which they claim covers the entire US economy. It's free to use as well, which is obviously always a bonus. Um, and it's continually updated from input by a broad range of workers in each occupation. So it is a database that is current is being revisited and revised. So it stays up to date and it's really easy to, to use as long as you have the job type of your participants. You can search on the database and use the information on the database to code for a number of variables, including job complexity, but they have other information on there. So it's a, it's a really nice, neat way of standardizing something which could be deemed as subjective. And, and I think one of the important things in research is if we can use standardized ways of classifying variables, of measuring variables, then it really helps us to compare studies and compare findings. So it really helps improve that, that consistency, which is important. Okay, uh, yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you were, uh, you know, looking or ONET looks up the complexity of a job by, by these sentences. I'm just curious to know how ONET does this in, in, in essence. Okay, so what happens when you search on the ONET database, you type in the occupation, so say... Um, you might type in surgeon, for example. I didn't have any surgeons in my study, but if you did, you type in the job type of surgeon and the database kind of, um, it, it brings up any matches to that job title surgeon. There is an exact match. You click on that and then it gives you a range of different bits of information that relate to that job, that job title or occupation. And one of those is um, what they classify as the job zone, which we use to classify complexity. And that ranges from job zone one, which is least complex, to job zone five, which is the most complex. And they have applied this uh, way of categorizing all of the occupations. And complexity is deemed to be a combination of things like the amount of years of experience or training or education that you might need in order to fulfill that job role. So obviously surgeon comes up as job zone five, one of the most complex job roles. So it's just a way of um, classifying jobs based on 
a combination of factors that would be seen to influence how complex it is, so the amount of experience and amount of education you might need in order to work in that particular role. Okay, that yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But one thing that has stuck in my mind is the um, the subjectivity of job complexity. And I'm just wondering if, you know, no matter the the complexity of a job or job role, surely wouldn't everyone benefit from some form of coaching either internally or externally? Well, yes and no. So, um, I mean, to answer the first part of the question, I would say that job complexity could be subjective. However, using a database such as ONET helps to take out some of that subjectivity because it provides us with this classification system, which could then be consistently applied across different research contexts. And with any type of psychological research, we're often measuring variables that are not purely objective. You know, if you think of something like job satisfaction, it it isn't a purely objective um, variable. There is, of course, some degree of subjectivity, but that's why we try and develop measures that can reliably and validly measure that particular construct. And I think this is another example of a variable that perhaps could be seen as subjective, but by using uh, a consistent classification method, we can remove some of that subjectivity. In terms of um, the relationship between job complexity and coaching, we had expected to see a difference um, in the impact of coaching based on the coach's job complexity. So this was one of the variables that I'd predicted the more complex job role you're working in, the greater the impact for the, for those people um, following coaching. And, and we thought that it would be uh, one of those variables where, in a way, someone working in the most complex job roles would benefit the most from coaching because of the complexity of their, their, their job. We think back to um, a moment ago when I, I gave the reasoning behind the growth of coaching and I explained that for me, it's about this idea that coaching can help us make sense of the world that we live in. That's particularly important for people working in very complex job roles where actually they're dealing with so many different demands on their um, kind of cognitive resources that working with someone on a one-to-one level to help make sense of that might be particularly beneficial. That was what we had initially thought. Our findings didn't support that. And we found that actually coaching was kind of equally beneficial for people in all job roles. So there wasn't um, this interaction effect that we anticipated with job complexity. However, we did find that there were interaction effects for coaching um, when we looked at uh, the type of coach. So we looked at external and internal coaches and job complexity. So coaching, um, it was more effective for people in the most complex job roles when they were coached by an external coach compared to an internal coach. So what I find particularly interesting about this finding is it really highlights the complexity of this kind of dissecting the effectiveness of coaching. It's not as simple as looking at um, complexity of job, which is what I'd initially thought. We actually have to go in a deeper level and break down those um, different variables even further to understand the differences in the impact of coaching. Okay, and as a host, and I guess this is um, quite true 
of many of those in academia, but I like to ask hypothetical questions of the the papers and to the guests of the papers that appear on this show. And so my question relates to different countries or different working cultures. So say if you were to take this study and, you know, complete it in the Middle East or South Asia, do you believe that there would be different results or would you have ended up with a different hypothesis to this particular piece? I suspect that you would. Um, however, this is an area that is really underexplored in the coaching effectiveness literature and it isn't something that I've um, personally explored. So I, I wouldn't be confident to go as far as hypothesizing what those differences would be, but I'm sure that there are differences present. And in fact, this is something that I would say really urgently needs addressing. You know, the, the idea of coaching across cultures and um, considering organizational culture and coaching is something that we talk about a lot on the program that I direct at Henley. Um, but it's also an area that, um, I'm co-editing a special issue on the advances of psychology of workplace coaching um, for the Journal of Applied Psychology and International Review. And one of the areas that we highlight, and my co-editor, Gil Bosser, and I, as being of particular interest is this idea of exploring environmental and cultural factors in coaching. So we're really hoping that we get some submissions that directly explore these areas because it's such a, an under-researched area that we don't really know um, the differences that we need to take into account when we, we're coaching people across different cultures. And given the, um, you know, one of the things, variables that we explore in our study is this idea of blended coaching using video phone and telephone. And there aren't um, kind of geographical restrictions on who you could coach in, in which culture. And we all know that we've got these kind of global teams where different um, cultures are expected to work together. So it is a really important area that needs to be researched more, in, in my opinion. Okay, so you talk about different coaching styles, and I want to pick up on this blended coaching style. But I want to ask you, how long has this blended coaching been common practice in the coaching industry? Well, it's hard to put a figure on it, but... Um... We know that there's a, there was a study published in 2005 by um, Joyce Bonner and colleagues that looked at executive um, coaching and practices of executive coaching. And in that study, they found that there were face-to-face um, -face was the most popular form, but telephone and email coaching was rated as being used um, sometimes by their sample, which was, I think, of over 400 plus executive coaches, predominantly in the U.S., um, video phone was less popular, but then this was 2005. I think since then, video conferencing technology has improved massively. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in this um, use um, as a mode of coaching. And when you talk to coaching practitioners, most of them will tell you that they do still like to retain some face-to-face -face contact, in particular during the early days of the intervention as it, it's seen to help build the relationship between the coach and the coachee. But certainly after that, many coaches and coaches seem happy to use blended formats because it does provide that greater flexibility. 
you know, it means that um, they don't have to travel somewhere to, to actually have the session. They can do it from the comfort of their office or if they're working from home. And studies such as ours and, and also the meta-analysis that I mentioned earlier, where we explored this variable, show that in some cases, um, blended formats can actually have a beneficial impact on coaching effectiveness. Yeah, and I guess it comes down to this idea of being on on demand. If you look at our society, especially in the West, there's a huge demand for the the right here, right now culture. So I'm guessing that has quite a lot of like sway in the industry. Definitely, yeah. And I, we we make that point in in the paper. And one of our reviewers uh, at one point during our the review process did rightly point out that just because someone is more available doesn't mean the coach will necessarily immediately respond to every kind of query or inquiry that the coachee has. But the reality is that, you know, responding to a quick email with a question or saying, you know, I really need um, uh, to have a coaching session this week because we've got this big project or something that's come up. If you can do that on the telephone or on video phone, you're more likely to be able to fit that into a diary than if you have to physically travel to somewhere, you know, which might then take you out a whole day. So I think the reality is that blended format does give greater flexibility um, for, for coaches to respond to their coaches' needs. Yeah, and I guess another point is the whole idea of of travel. You know, if you're a high executive or if you're a CEO and a coach has four of these uh, coaches or clients, so to speak, then the amount of travel that you'd have to do, say, in the in the US to go from north to south or east to west, within Europe, in Asia, or you know, even in the UK, if you're based on the south coast and you know, you've know you got a CEO up in Edinburgh, that's still going to take a lot of time to travel when you can effectively coach remotely. Definitely. It makes it more um, accessible, means that you're not restricted by, um, by the kind of geographical boundaries. I, I know many of my um kind of colleagues and people in my network who are coaching frequently they they coach people all over the world because they can do it via video conference now so um it really opens up opportunities for people i think okay so in your introduction you talked about how you wanted to you know take this academic practice and push it into the real world and to you know actual coaches and coaches and businesses so for this you know, particular piece, what impact could it have in either the, the real world of coaching or even in the world of academia when it comes to coaching? So, yes, it is, a, it is one of my passions that people actually hopefully read my research and use it. So I do try and um, make sure that there is always a kind of real world focus of um, the things that I like to research. So. I think with this particular paper, we have some really specific recommendations based on our findings, which hopefully people might use when in their um, kind of coaching practice or for people who seek coaching. And we suggest that individuals that are seeking to address effective issues through coaching, so that's something like well-being, which is the variable that we used in this study, that they utilize an external workplace coach rather than an internal coach and that they use a blended format of coaching. And we also suggest that coaches who are working in the most complex job roles should seek coaching from an external coach rather than an internal coach. In terms of impact for academia, uh, in the paper we develop 
a scale um, where, as I've mentioned, we, we measure personal effectiveness following coaching and work well-being following coaching. And I really hope that that scale might be utilised by other researchers who are looking to investigate coaching outcomes. Um, but also perhaps that our approach in terms of using ONET to code for job features and exploring uh, practice factors like the type and format of coaching are explored more extensively because there isn't much out there that looks at these types of variables. And I think the more research that can start to examine these different conditions in different circumstances with um, different outcomes will really help us to understand what I believe are probably quite complex interactions between the various variables that impact on coaching effectiveness. Okay, I'm going to push it back a bit. And, you know, as we talked about the, the publishing process, and I just want to ask you what your process was like. And, you know, as you're the first guest who is in business and away from the the life sciences, I'm also curious to know what the publishing process is like in your field in general. So, um, it's challenging. <laughs> I'd say probably most people who are trying to publish in journals and hopefully in the uh, kind of the top tier of journals, um, you know, we, we're looking at publishing in four and three star journals, um, ideally. It's, it's difficult and it can be a very lengthy process with a number of reviews and revisions. Um, uh, but I would say that this, this particular paper was no more or less difficult than any of the papers that I've published previously or I've got um, kind of in the pipeline at the moment. They all tend to be equally as challenging. Um, I mean, I'm also the managing editor of um, a journal, the Applied Psychology and International Review. So, uh, and I'm a reviewer on a number of journals. So I'm quite heavily involved in a number of different ways in publishing journals. So um, I suppose that perhaps I have a slightly different perspective. I do feel quite strongly that the system that we have is is pretty good. I know some people are quite um perhaps not so supportive of the whole peer review process, but I think generally when you look at the very top journals, they tend to have the top papers, the most rigorous scientific papers published in those journals. So I suppose I'm quite supportive of the process. And because of that Perhaps I don't mind the fact that it's challenging because then when you do get a paper published or it's accepted, you kind of feel like you've really earned it and you can celebrate that achievement. So um, that's kind of, I suppose, my view on the whole publishing process. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And obviously everybody's piece, everybody's publication is is going to end up being different. You know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they are bad. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, most papers, you know, get rejected a few times from different journals before you find the right home for it. And even then, you have to be prepared to go through a number of revisions and really quite substantial revisions. But I think, um, you know, being I have got that kind of insider's perspective, being a managing editor as well, and and that is the norm, that that's what the process is. The paper that you start off with is never the paper that you end up publishing and I think as long as you accept that as part of the process then that's okay it's and at the beginning that was hard the very first paper that I went through it was really painful (laughs) because uh, every review I took so personally and um, was really hard to kind of respond to it in a constructive way but 
I suppose the more that you do it, the more you realize that actually that is just the process. And as long as you embrace that and realize that at the end of it, your paper will be better because of the process, then it's worth it. Okay, and this is, um, you know, getting to the, the part of the podcast where, you know, the questions are similar each each episode, but, you know, the responses vary so, so much between the different academics and obviously it's your your past, your personal past that has a, a lot to do with this. So I'm just going to ask you, who's influenced yourself and your work the most? Um, there isn't really one particular person. I mean, my, my PhD supervisor, who was the co-author on this particular paper, Professor Steve Woods, has obviously been a big influence. And, um, you know, I've published with him a couple of times and we have another paper that we're working on together, which um, uh, were all part of my my doctoral thesis. Um, but also I try to read widely from a number of the top journals in work psychology field. And so I think just the, the, the general literature influences me. In particular, I'm really interested in understanding different research methodologies. And I also really like studies that try and draw together or link theories and concepts in new ways. So I'd say kind of those different aspects are, are key influences for me in my work as well. Okay, and so how do you, as an academic, usually spend your week? How do you divide your your time? Well, it varies each week. Um, the programme that I direct and teach on is a postgraduate post-experience programme. So I, te- I teach in blocks, which is perhaps quite different to some academics who might do kind of shorter lectures throughout the, the week. Um, so I um, would do a block of three days at any time and that's kind of spread throughout the whole year. So I'm also not on a normal academic year. I have teaching in the summer as well. Um, so any week that I'm teaching on the program tends to be dominated with teaching only. However, other times of the year, like um, December is a good month. I don't have any teaching this month. So as long as I've kind of prepared my teaching materials in advance, I can use the majority of time when I'm not teaching on research. But um, I mean, my way of working is to try and chip away at projects little and often. So every week I try to spend at least some time progressing any live research projects. It just um, varies in terms of how much time I can dedicate um, based on other commitments. Okay, so um, keeping up to date with the literature a huge huge task for any academic and obviously again as i've uh, reiterated quite a few times during this particular podcast it's always interesting to speak to someone that's not in the life sciences and so this question is how do you keep up to date with the literature because for me myself i i don't know how quick the journals come at you so obviously in the sciences it's extremely extremely rapid more so than the humanities for example so what's it like in business and management i mean one one thing that helps me is the the podcast series that i record because each month i talk about a new um piece of research so that it makes me kind of sit down and actually look through at the alerts that come through on my email and select a piece of research that i want to discuss um i mean There'll be times when I'm working on a research project where, you know, then I have to get back into the literature and I'll do a lot of reading in order to write up that project. Or if I'm um, 
developing teaching materials and actually I want to revisit the literature then. So it's probably not something that I would say I consistently read, you know, for a couple of hours every week, the literature, but there'll be times when perhaps actually I'm spending a lot of time revisiting the literature to um, inform projects that I'm working on. And then there'll be other times when perhaps I'm not engaged within it with it as much. Okay. So, um, yeah, the last question is um, your one piece of advice for anybody that's undertaking the PhD. Well, this kind of relates back to um, to what I was talking about earlier about the review process. So um, anyone who um, wants to be successful in academia um, has to publish. Um, you know, this whole idea of publish or perish. And I think that for me, when I see people who are successful at publishing, it's they're the people that really do embrace that whole review process. And so I think for me, it's about really believing that the review process will enhance your work and make it better, even if it's quite painful process at the time. And I suppose this does apply during the PhD process as well. It can be really hard getting feedback from your supervisor sometimes that um, might mean you have to substantially change what you've written or amend your kind of perspective. But being able to openly embrace that feedback and respond to it constructively, it takes a lot of resilience. But if you can do that, then I think that's the key to to being successful in, in academia. I mean, one of the things that I've come to realise is that um, writing up the revision to a paper will probably take as much time, maybe even more than it took to write the first draft. And I think that for me, certainly during the earlier years of my career, I, I really didn't realize that. I knew I'd have to go through the revision process, but you know, you think, oh, well, I've, I've done the piece of research. I've written up the paper. I've got it submitted. That's the bulk of it done. And that isn't the reality. The reality is you've still got many, many months, maybe years of revisions to go before that paper is actually published. And if you can accept that that is what the process is like, then you're less likely to feel frustrated and um, kind of that's less likely to have a negative impact on you, I think. Okay. And that is all we have time for today. So thank you for coming on and joining us today on Researcher Radio. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Today, we've been joined by Dr. Rebecca Jones from the University of Reading. So, Rebecca... Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, yeah, before we go, where can people find your particular podcast if they enjoyed this one and want to find out a bit more about your specialist area? So um, you can, um, on iTunes, it's the Coaching Academic Podcast or also SoundCloud. Um, and also you can follow me on Twitter at coach underscore research. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you for listening, everybody. Until next time. You've been listening to The Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com. Or, alternatively, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.